responsive psalm this morning is from Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough contempt. Our souls has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of contempt of the proud. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Today's gospel reading is from the book of John, chapter 13, verses 3 to 5 and 12 to 17. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. To remain standing, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak to us, reveal yourself to us. We pray in light of that truth that I as preacher just get out of the way. Far, far less of me, far, far more of you. That your people gathered here would be edified and your son Jesus glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? History, they say, is written by the victor from the perspective of power and privilege, the voices of the conquered, the powerless, the marginalized are ignored, even silenced. We live in a time where those voices are being given space. And history is being rewritten to include their perspective. For those of us with power and privilege, our sense of history defines who we are, where we've come from, and where we're going. And so that rewriting of history can be deeply unsettling, for it goes deep to our sense of self, our sense of place in the world, and has led to some strong reactions of either anger, didn't happen that way, or sorrow. This was not right. We need to make restitution. 
But hearing those voices, listening to their stories, empathizing with their experiences, will not leave us the same. For good or for ill, it'll change, it'll mold, it'll shape us. As a church, we're currently ascending to celebrate the Easter feast. And along the way, we're working our way through an ancient process of formation captured in the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms that were sung, debated, and discussed by pilgrims as they went up to Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate the feasts. Our psalm today, Psalm 123, which I'll invite you to turn to in your Bible or on your Bible apps, or if you grab a Bible in front of you, it can be found on page 572. This psalm was written more than likely by a slave or written from the perspective of a slave, written by someone who's on the bottom rung of the economic ladder, revealing to us that if we are to be formed to live God's way in God's world, if we're to journey where God is calling us in Jesus, these are the kinds of voices we need to hear, to receive, to empathize with, and to respond to. And when we enter into the biblical world, we enter into a world that is different from our own, a world that was divided between slaves and free people. When we think of slavery, we almost immediately think of the racially driven North American slave trade of the 17th and 18th centuries. Africans were kidnapped, packed onto ships. Few survived the journey across the Atlantic. Sold at market, forced to work plantations. No hope of release passed as property from generation to generation. No words can do justice to the horror, the egregiousness of such a practice. But slavery in ancient times, for example, during the Roman Empire, was not that way. It wasn't racially motivated. It was the basis of their economy. Sure, yes, a conquered people would be enslaved, but it was also something you could enter into yourself. If you're in a society where there was no bankruptcy protection laws, if your business tanked and you own money to your creditor, one of your options was to sell yourself into slavery. Your master would pay off your debt, and then you would have to work off that debt over an agreed period of time, and then you'd be free. Also, if you weren't a Roman citizen, you weren't upwardly mobile, but you could sell yourself into slavery, and during your servitude, you'd be trained in a skill be it groundskeeper or household manager or an educator of children. And upon release, you'd be granted Roman citizenship and you'd have skills. And it would open up a whole new world of economic possibilities. Just because slavery in the ancient world was different than we can imagine, different in that it wasn't for life, doesn't mean that it was any less brutal. As a slave, you were not your own. You had no rights. You served at your master's pleasure. There was nothing that they could do or ask that was out of bounds. The group of pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast would have been a mixed crowd. 
would have been made up of slaves and free people, masters and servants. They're both singing and reflecting upon the same psalm, discussing, debating. For the enslaved, the servant, Psalm 123 gives them words to express their deep anger and their yearning. I lift my eyes to you, O Lord, enthroned in the heavens. Have mercy on us. We've had more than enough of the contempt that we've been showing. We work and work and work while they live at ease. And all we get in response is scorn. We're treated like we're less than. We've had more than enough of this. We are done. Give us mercy. Give us mercy. The master, the free in the crowd are singing the same song. They're hearing, they're joining in the cries of the enslaved, singing the song of agony of the lowest class of their society. There will be some listening to the sound of my voice for whom this psalm gives expression to their heart's cry. I would suspect for the vast majority of us, we're simply listening in. What would it look like to truly Hear this cry. Years ago, I was invited to participate in a leadership course called Arrow. It was a two-year program of training in Christian leadership. And one of the, the modules was about leading with a heart for gospel justice. The module had assignments that they gave, and one was practical in nature. You had to either volunteer for a day in an outreach ministry or you would go out onto the street dressed like a homeless person and panhandle for the day. Any money that you got would be either given to a homeless shelter or someone who was truly panhandling. And I, like most people, chose the easier option. I volunteered for a day at an outreach ministry. But after I heard the experiences of those who panhandled, I wish I'd taken that option. It was life-changing for them. They said they'd never in their lives experienced the scorn, the contempt, the utter dismissal of their humanity that they experienced in just one day of panhandling. The experience led them to retool and rethink how they did ministry. It led them to some honest self-reflection. Do I make others feel this way? See, to truly hear the cry of the afflicted, to empathize with it, often rightly stirs up some honest self-reflection. Do I, in my words, my attitudes, my behavior... Treat those who are different from me with an air of superiority, a heart of contempt. You see, the raw materials for such a posture resides in every single human heart, doesn't it? For example, when we see wrong in another person, we don't focus on what we have in common with them to realize that we're just as capable of the same things. We seem to automatically focus on what makes us different. Let's say you're a woman and a man tries to control you. 
there's often a temptation to say, well, well, he's, he's a bully because he's a man. Because that's where we're different. We don't say that's how human beings are. We say that's how men are. Contempt. Or you're a man and a woman deceives you. There's a temptation to say, well, she's deceptive because she's a woman and because that's where we're different. We don't say, well, that's how human beings are. We say that's how women are. Contempt. Well, let's say you're wealthy and you get scammed by a poor person. There's a temptation to say, well, poor people are scammers because that's where you're different. You don't say that's how people are. We say that's how the poor are. Contempt. Or you're poor and you get pushed around by a wealthy person. There's the temptation to say, well, wealthy people, they're, they're entitled because that's where you're different. We don't say that's the way people are. We say that's the way the wealthy are. Contempt. Or you get into a a debate in person or on social media and it goes sideways, devolving into the casting of aspersions, responses based on unfounded assumptions. There's the temptation to say, well, that's the way the left is, elitist snowflakes. Or that's the way the right is, racist bigots, because that's where you're different. You don't say that's the way human beings are. You say that's the way the left is or that's the way the right is. Contempt. To hear the cry of the psalm, to empathize with the agony in the face of contemptuous scorn is to ask the question, do I make others feel this way? For in the human heart, all the raw materials for such contempt, such an air of superiority, such a pride rooted in our differences, it's found in every single human heart. So what's the antidote? What will turn the heart's tide from this contemptuous scorn? It's interesting how the pronouns in the psalm move from an I to a we. The psalmist begins by reflecting on their own experience and then invites the entire community with the we to share in that perspective. Empathized, in verse 2, with both masculine and feminine imagery. The psalmist is saying, I, as a servant, a slave, know something of what it is to come rightly before God as a servant, and I'm inviting all of you, I invite you, pastors, to take that same posture before him. In this psalm, the servant is teaching the master. And this is a pattern in the way that God works, right? He's constantly choosing the poor, the broken, the downtrodden, the maligned to be his messengers to transformative effect. At my last church, I was meeting with a man named Dave in one-to-one discipleship. A few years before our meeting, Dave was at the height of his career. Great salary, perfect family, large home, solid health before it all began to unravel. Failing mental health, addiction, job loss, the cost 
that took on his family, his marriage. At the time, Dave and I were reading portions of Scripture that led Dave to ask, why is it that that God seems to use the powerless, the outcast, the broken as his messengers, more than the the powerful, the the wealthy, the accomplished? You would think with the backing of, of wealth and power, he could have accomplished so much more. In that moment, I I didn't have the wisdom to respond, and so I prayed, and thankfully the Spirit gave me a response in keeping with what I knew of Dave's story. And so I asked him, Dave, if, if I came to you when your life was exactly the way you wanted it to be, and I said to you, Dave, you're a sinner, so sinful that Jesus had to enter human history to die for you, that forgiveness and new life might be yours in him, how would you respond to me? He laughed. He said, I would have dismissed you. I don't need that. My life tells me I've got it all together. Okay, so I asked a second question. I said, Dave, what if I came to you after your life unraveled and said, Dave, you're a sinner so sinful that Jesus had to enter human history to die for you, that forgiveness and new life might be yours in him. How would you respond to me then? And he smiled knowingly. For God had chosen in his life to use a homeless, addicted man to give him that message. And to receive that message meant that he had to receive the messenger. And receiving the messenger was part of the message. For to receive such a message is humbling enough. You're a sinner in need of grace, but to receive that message... From a homeless, addicted man, transformed his heart and led him to lay down his gifts, his talents, his resources in time for many years as the director of one of the oldest charities in the city of Toronto serving the poor. This is the way that God works. He chooses or the broken, the weak, to bring about the transformative message of the gospel. You know, a number of times in my life, I've had people that I would least expect it reveal a deep truth to me about who God is. God has spoken to me through that person. A person that, honestly, is maligned and rejected often in the church. A person, if I were completely honest with myself, and I'll try to be here, I would think that I was better than, I was morally superior to, spiritually more attuned than. But I'm hearing something from them that I can't dismiss. I know it's from God. And so what does hearing it from that person do to my heart? Oh, it's exposing me, right? I can see my pride, I can see my bigotry, I can see my sin, I can see my judgmental heart. The the messenger is exposing in me more and more of my need. And wow, it's been humbling. Because to receive their message means receiving the messenger. Receiving the messenger is part of the message. It is shaped how I pastor, how I serve, how I see God's world. And the psalm is inviting us to that same place, to learn from the slave the way of discipleship, 
A posture that both expresses and forms humility, scattering us where we think we're gathered, breaking us where we think we're whole, making us nothing when we think we're something. For God resists our pride, but extends grace, humility, gathering us where we know we're scattered, making us whole where we know we're broken, making us something when we know we're nothing. But the psalm invites us to learn from the slave the way of discipleship. Verse 2, as a servant to a Lord King. Now, of all the, the metaphors in the Bible used to describe our relationship with God, this servant to king is probably one of our least favorite metaphors, isn't it? No, 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 I won't serve anybody. No one has the right to tell me how to live. I'm free. I'm the master of my own destiny, the captain of my own ship. But are we free? As the great theologian Bob Dylan sings, you got to serve someone. And as he goes through the entire song, he reflects on the, the spectrum of human experience to affirm we're all serving someone or something. And in the chorus, he says, it's either going to be the devil from hell or it's going to be the Lord God. Because we're all serving something, right? We're all enslaved to something. We've all given ourselves over and something is ultimately driving us. Be it career, wealth, comfort, beauty, security, success, male, female, affection. And such things are cruel taskmasters. They're never satisfied. They're constantly keeping us moving and driving and performing and striving and chasing and worrying. Instead, the psalmist invites us, verse 2, to as the servant looks to the hand of the master, as the maidservant looks to the hand of her mistress, so we all are invited to look to the hand of the Lord God. To the hand of God for what? The master might raise his hand in punishment. The mistress might flick her hand with a command. But the servant looks to the hand of the master, to the Lord God, for what? Verse 3, mercy. Mercy. Mercy, which is unconditional regard. Mercy, love that is completely gratuitous. Mercy, the giving of self completely over to our well-being. Mercy, as one commentator highlights it, at its root is the posture of inclining, of stooping toward the other. Mercy, that notches an arrow and lets fly a trajectory through the biblical story to the person and work of Jesus who reveals the heart of God's mercy. And our gospel reading gives us a picture of just that. You see, in every time, in every culture, there's been a job that has been so degrading, so menial, that only the lowest of the low would do it or could do it. And what was that task in the ancient world? It was unbuckling the sandals of another 
and washing the muck and grime off a person's feet. The night that before Jesus died, he was at supper with his disciples. At the end of supper, he got up, he took off his robes, he tied them around his waist, he stooped, he inclined, unbuckled his disciples' sandals, and washed the muck and the grime off their feet. It was a moment that pointed to many things, but one of the things it pointed to was what he was about to do for all of us on the cross. For on the cross, God in Jesus gets down on his hands and knees and buckles our sandals, exposes what we wouldn't want anyone else to see, what we wouldn't even want to acknowledge to ourselves, and washes us clean. We're all going to serve something. We're all going to serve We're either going to give ourselves over our career, the opinions of others, to wealth, to comfort, to beauty, security, but those things will never forgive you, never love you, never give them their all for you. You Give yourselves over to Jesus, serve him alone, and you'll know his love, his forgiveness, his mercy. He'll form and he'll shape and change you into a redeemed life, a vessel fit for his kingdom. For when we see him there, the Lord of creation, dying for our sin, what place can contemptuous pride have in our hearts? When we see him there, our heavenly king, laying down his life for us, it upends everything we think we know about power, about kingdom, about truth. When we see him there, the hands that flung stars into space surrendered to cruel nails, we see that true life, love, sacrifices itself for the other. As Eugene Peterson put it in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, he reflected on this psalm with these words. The consequences of serving Christ are all positive. I've never heard a servant Christian complain about the oppressiveness of his servitude. I've never yet heard a servant Christian rail against the restrictions of her service. A servant Christian is the freest person on earth. In a few moments, we will join with our worship team to sing a fitting prayer of response to this psalm in the words of Graham Kendrick. This is our God, the servant king, who calls us now to follow him, to give our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. May we be humbled by his mercy, lay our pride at the foot of the cross, and be formed by him in the pattern of servitude, to love as he has loved us. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.